0: welcome to The Vinyl Approach, episode 18. My name is Tom Wilmoth. Today, I am going back to a piece I wrote about 10 years ago. It has to do with eight-track tapes. I wanted to revisit it because eight-tracks have drifted back onto my radar lately. I have a cousin who is an avid thrift shopper. During her explorations, she used to stumble upon eight-track tapes all the time, it doesn't happen much anymore, but she did recently come across several large boxes of these used tapes, and she called me to ask if I had any interest. The guy wanted way too much for what he had, so I passed. But I always appreciate my cousins letting me know what tapes she finds while searching for her own treasures. When thinking back on the following piece, I remembered that I had been pretty critical. Before I reread it, I wondered if my views had changed. We'll find out. So, here are my thoughts on 8-track tapes from a few years back. 8-track tapes were the worst idea for a music format in the history of recorded sound. In every way possible, 8-tracks present a strange and irritating anomaly. They were an abomination, a black mark on the music industry. 8-track tapes should not have been allowed to exist. Yet somehow they were manufactured, were marketed, and did catch on with the music-buying public, in a big way. For a few years, from 1971 to 1974, 8-track tape cartridges outsold cassette tapes. 8-tracks were second only to vinyl albums and sales of pre-recorded music. This popularity did not last, and now the term 8-track tape is a punchline when discussing failed experiments. It's amazing that this user-hostile technology was allowed to be introduced into the marketplace. It is even more unlikely that it was embraced by the public even for a short time. For the decreasing number of people who even remember eight-track tapes, their mention provides memories of a distant time that brings a brief smile, if not an outright laugh. And rightly so. This invention should never have been taken seriously. The tapes broke with some regularity, were difficult to repair, and they presented the music in a bizarre manner, often ignoring the wishes of the artist both for the album packaging and for the song sequencing. But while I readily acknowledge each of the serious flaws just mentioned, I love my 8-track tapes. After years of lying fallow, an active 8-track player is again connected to my living room sound system. I enjoy playing 8-tracks for unwitting guests who believe they are hearing a CD. I ask them how they like the fine audio fidelity, and then wait with anticipation for the cluck clunk of the tape's track change. Visitors briefly humor me, and then remember some reason they need to go home. Like many who came of age in the 1970s, I have memories of eight-track tapes, but mine evoke thoughts other than laughter. As I look back on my music education, I realize that eight-track tapes served a unique function. Because of their inflexible and unyielding nature, those who listened to this format would be forced to hear a tape at whatever place in its program it happened to be. Rewinding a tape to the beginning of a song was impossible with the physics of 8-track design. Yes, there were fast-forward capabilities on some of the more expensive home machines, but even these were not that fast. And yes, you could switch from one program to another, but this would invariably place the listener in mid-song on one of the other tracks. As such, you listened to the tape where it was, or removed the tape from the player. As a friend accurately said to me, the 8-track machine tells you what you will listen to. Because of this uniquely dogmatic programming trait, I became familiar with all of the songs on the 8-tracks I played, and not just the selections I really wanted to hear. While waiting for the program to get to a given song, I would be forced to hear the two or three tunes that preceded it. As it turned out, these were usually not too bad. In fact, sometimes I started liking these previously unknown numbers more than the tapes featured song. Bands of the era should have paid more attention to this captive audience trait of the 8-track format. And so, as I say, I became well acquainted with complete albums, not just songs. In high school, I drove around with an 8-track player in my mom's Chevy Impala, listening to the 49-cent 8-tracks I had bought in area cutout bins. These were often unknown albums, purchased solely on artists' name recognition. The tapes were usually discontinued, placed in inexpensive cutout bins, because there had been no radio hits on the vinyl album that was the tape's counterpart. It mattered not. By 1971, I thought I had outgrown Top 40 radio, although this delusion was only a temporary error. I did, however, enjoy the commercial-free element of the 8-track tape experience, something that my XM radio would again provide many years later. So from the bargain bins, I grabbed 8-track tapes by artists I knew to one degree or another. The Byrd's Notorious "Bird Brothers was a good one. Randy Newman's Good Old Boys is another that comes to mind both are strong records which i know well in their entirety only because of the inflexible programming of eight track tapes giving credit where it is due an eight track tape could possess surprisingly high fidelity audio this is a fact of analog audio physics when an eight track tape was operating correctly its audio spectrum would consistently outperform that of a cassette tape why eight track tape played at 3 and 3/4 inches per second cassette tape ran at half that speed, at one and seven 8 inches per second. Faster is better, as this allows more space on the tape to store the sound. The high end of the audio spectrum is clearer with a faster speed, and the sound's presence, or its depth, is more crisp and overall superior. This is why I can play eight tracks for unsuspecting visitors and pass the music off as digital sound. People visiting our house are not audiophiles, of course. Most have not come to hear audio demonstrations. They are usually there to visit my wife. Big shock. And, of course, most people today seem happy with sound reproduced from narrow-spectrum earbuds and from tiny computer speakers. It is clear that most folks don't really concern themselves much with audio fidelity. And that, too, is fine. But not for me. (music) subject of 8-track tapes can take on a life of its own. Or it can for me. So in addition to praising the audio fidelity of the format, we can't escape the elephant in the room, the ghost in the machine, the fly in the soup. And it's a biggie. The thing which must be acknowledged about the curious artifact of 8-track tapes concerns its harsh, unbending physical trait which demanded interruptions in the music. Why? A typical 40-minute album had to be split into four programs of 10 minutes each, Each program was stereo, so four stereo programs, which equals eight tracks. Sometimes the album's selections could be arranged in such an order so that no song had to be split between the programs, if the original album's running order was rearranged. Because of this, the songs on an eight-track tape would often be in a markedly different order than found on the original album, a song order carefully chosen by the artist, one would guess. But usually, even after such reconfiguration, at least one song still had to be split. On some eight tracks, up to three songs would be split between tracks. Very disconcerting. It was odd to be listening to a song and have it suddenly start to fade out. You knew the tune wasn't over, but it faded anyway. Then the cluck-clunk of the machine-changing tracks was heard, followed by the song returning to full volume. Irritating, but you sort of got used to it. Sort of. I remember riding home with a guy that I worked with in a Des Moines grocery store in about 1970. He had just installed an eight-track player in his hot car and was playing the first Crosby, Stills, and Nash album. The tape was in the middle of wooden ships when the song faded out to switch tracks and then faded back in. I told him, man, that sucks. He immediately said, no, man, that makes it twice as good. I'm still not sure if he was serious or not. But for whatever reason, I soon embraced this flawed format and was so heavy into 8-tracks that by 1973 I had purchased a home recorder and was considering transferring my albums to 8-track tape. Fortunately, this idea had a very short life. Sometimes no songs needed to be split. Two record sets could time out beautifully for the tape's programs. If all four sides of the double album were the same length, each side could be represented by one of the four stereo programs on the tape. This was somewhat rare, but not unheard of. Loosen Up Naturally by the Sons of Champlin is an example of an 8-track tape that exactly follows the song order of its LP counterpart. This is because the album itself was a two-record set, and each of the four sides contained almost exactly 16 minutes of music. Simple solution for arranging the songs, one side of the record for each program. Here, the record company didn't even mess up the obvious by changing the running order, so no songs were split between tracks. Logic did not always prevail. I recall seeing an 8-track of the double album Layla at a party in college. The four sides of the Layla album each contained 20 minutes of music. Even so, the programmers of this tape had somehow managed to split the album's great title song between two tracks, making it fade out and then back in. And without cause. The song you originally bought the tape to hear greatly diminished by an interruptive track switch. But the big problem with putting a two record set onto an eight track was the amount of tape required. It could overload the cartridge's inner workings, making the tape more likely to jam, stretch, and break. We can blame Mr. Lear, of Lear Jet fame, for the very existence of the eight track tape, although his idea was never for mass production to the public. Lear thought that tape cartridges would work well for thirty or sixty second loops of tape used in radio stations for advertisements and they did work great for these. 30 seconds of tape, no problem. The difficulty arose when you tried to put over 15 minutes of tape onto the cartridge's spool. This is when things became bollocksed. Simple physics. There was also the fragile tape splice to consider, the point at which the track changed. This was the most temperamental part of the tape loop, and the first to cause trouble. In addition to splitting songs between tracks, there were other interesting anomalies created by the introduction of the 8-track format. To fulfill time requirements of a tape, a song would occasionally be repeated, appearing twice on the same tape. This occurs on Johnny Cash's Gone Girl 8-track and Bob Dylan's Slow Train Coming. More frequently, a song would be edited to fit time restrictions. On Dylan's Blonde on Blonde 8-track, the organ and hi-hat introduction to Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands has been cut. These few lost measures might not appear important to some, but on Dylan's Bringing It All Back Home 8-track, the song It's Alright Ma, I'm Only Bleeding, is missing its entire last two verses, cut to fit the format. On rare occasions, a selection would be lengthened to better fit its 8-track program. The song California, on John Mayall's Turning Point, is such an instance. Saxophonist Johnny Alman takes a solo in this selection, but at the conclusion of Almond's feature, this exact solo is heard again. The makers of the eight track elongated this number so that it would fill up the program. Very odd. It's doubtful that any of the artists I just mentioned had a say in the decision to repeat a number or to truncate or expand a selection. In fact, most performers appeared to have little involvement in programming their eight track tapes, but one artist took great exception to the rearrangement of his material. When RCA Records told Harry Nilsson that the song order of his album Aerial Pandemonium Ballet would be altered to accommodate the eight track format, he balked. Nilsson cleverly solved the problem by recording an additional track entitled Phil to be included on the tape. This 30 second spoken piece does not appear on the LP, but is used on the eight track because, as Nilsson explains during this whispered track, he does not want to destroy the continuity of the album by resequencing it. He is successful. Both in allowing his songs to be heard in the order he intended and in mocking RCA Records. Okay, well, that's the way I wrote the piece in the fall of 2011. I still stand by it, but there are a couple of things in there from 10 years ago that I now find interesting. One has to do with my point about presenting the songs to the listener in the order that the artist wanted. Since the advent of downloading and streaming, Listening to an album of uninterrupted songs in the order chosen by the musician has largely vanished. People no longer listen to albums. They listen to songs. Metallica was among the few artists who tried to hold out against iTunes selling individual songs. The band wanted their full albums to be sold as a unit to encourage hearing the music in the order the band intended. Metallica ultimately relented, allowing songs to be sold individually but I applaud their notion of creating an album designed to be played as a cohesive grouping of songs, one where tracking order and the very inclusion of each number makes a difference to the totality of the project. In some ways, we have gone back to the days of the single. Newer listeners want to hear the specific songs they want to hear and not sit through other material, even by an artist they like. This is an overstatement, but it does harken back to the early to mid-1960s mindset of an album featuring one well-known hit, and several other songs by the same performer, that is, before the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper album. Another comment I made in the original piece had to do with the limited fidelity of earbuds and small speakers, and while I would not trade my sound system for either, I must acknowledge that these miniature devices have both gone through impressive audio transformations. The new ones can sound great, even delivering bass response and presence that is remarkable. Something else that caught my attention deals with problematic terminology. Because the 8-track tape cartridges discussed today are now largely forgotten, the very term 8-track can be confusing. While watching the new Beatles documentary on the making of their Let It Be album, the band is interested in bringing in an 8-track recording machine to their ad hoc studio. What they are talking about in the film is different from the 8-tracks I am discussing. An 8-track console for a recording studio was a reel-to-reel tape machine on which multiple tracks were recorded individually so sound could be layered and combined for the final record. This professional 8-track recording machine is very different from the 8-track tape cartridge one would play in a car. Another thing that has struck me lately about these curious artifacts, artists were and are aware of their 8-track releases. And I wonder if some performers remember them, perhaps even fondly, A few years back, I asked drummer Danny Serafin to sign my eight-track tape of Chicago 3. No problem. Didn't bat an eye. When the Rolling Stones made a live recording of their Sticky Fingers album in 2015, Mick Jagger announced to the audience that they would be performing all the songs from Sticky Fingers, but not necessarily in the order that they appear on the record. He then laughingly suggests that the band might play the songs in the order found on the eight-track tape. They don't, but I enjoy the shout-out to 8-tracks. I own the Sticky Fingers 8-track, by the way, and it still sounds great. I own a handful of other 8-tracks that I prize, with the Beatles' White Album topping the list. These tapes are played only occasionally, as I live in fear they will jam in the tape deck or break at the next track change. A very real possibility. There used to be a website called The 8-Track Mind, I enjoyed spending time there, but the people who maintained the site shut it down a while back. They said that it was no longer very much fun to collect and obsess over 8-track tapes because many had become collector's items, with high prices being paid for certain titles. No longer were these curios relegated to garage sales and bargain bins. I was sad to see the website go, but based on the decreasing number of calls I was receiving from my cousin, breathlessly telling me of the 8-tracks she had located on her rummage sale outings, I knew they were right to close the site. The game had changed, and big money was especially being paid for the quadraphonic 8-track tapes, sometimes with good reason. But let's save our discussion of the failed format known as Quad for another day. For now, may your 8-track splices always hold and may your tapes never jam. This has been The Vinyl Approach. I'm Tom Wilmoth, and if you are interested in reading more of my opinions about music, I have published a book called Soundbites: A Lifetime of Listening. Soundbites is available on Amazon. This has been The Vinyl Approach, and I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.